Well, come on back and uh, grab a Bible. If you need a Bible, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Mike and maybe Dave or somebody will get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. You're going to want to follow along looking at the Word. If you don't, that's okay too. But, I mean, if you don't need a Bible, but if you do need a Bible, grab one and uh, we'll get you all set. You know, something too, I guess in our announcements, man, that's something I'm really excited about and... Uh, because this is kind of my bailiwick, but, you know, we have a resource center now which has books in it. Right. And, uh, boy, you know, you you could do yourself a wonderful favor by picking one of those up. Those are some great selections down there. And the one, I'll just plug this one today, Gentle and Lowly. Go go read that book. Uh, I keep saying it because I heard another pastor say it, so it's not me saying this, but or it's not an original thought, but that book is like medicine for the soul, man. And so if you're hurting or struggling uh, or anything, or you just want medicine for the soul, get that book, um, Gentle and Lowly. It's beautiful. So, okay, so here's where we are. We're in the book of Job, and I just uh, wanted to read you guys a couple things. We're in Job 32, And I wanted to read you guys something just to begin, something that you already know. Um, Do you know this? I've read this to you a couple times, but the Bible says in 1 Peter this, okay? The Bible says in 1 Peter this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Raise your hand if you've ever been through a trial. Yeah. You've been grieved by various trials, that, but look at this, that the genuineness of your faith, I want you to catch this, which is much more precious than gold that perishes. Though it is tested by fire, this is what God's after in you. Here it is. That your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ who having not seen you love. God's after your faith being more precious than gold. And now here, lest you feel uh, pressured, it isn't really about you building up macho, awesome, bold, beautiful, big faith. That's, of course, we want to have trust and dependence, but really it's what or who our faith is in. So when you get in a trial which we all just raised our hand and said we've been in, God's after something. He's after you to trust and depend his goodness, and that would, it would be more precious than even gold to you. Okay, now turn over to the book of John, chapter 14. Verse 1, I bet you even know this, but you, many of you have uh, memorized this. Chapter 14, verse 1. If it gets too cold over there, you're welcome to have somebody turn that down, okay? Uh, and Gabe will do it. If you're too cold, raise your hand and he'll do it for you. But anyway, verse 1, chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> he really wants to get your attention, I think. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, why am I linking those together? Because you're going to go live in a heavenly home forever. I mean, that's what the Bible says. I don't care what denomination you're in. The Bible says you're going to go live in a heaven. This isn't some crazy thing, Calvary Chapel. This is Orthodox Christianity. You're going to go live in your heavenly home that Jesus has been preparing for you, and there's going to be no sun there because there's going to be no need of a son, because the Bible tells us in the last couple chapters of the whole Bible that God's going to come and dwell with us. That's the whole goal of the Bible, his presence with us. 
But you can only go if you're found to have the blood. I'm doing the doorposts like the Passover, but the blood over your heart. You must surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Count on the blood, not your good works, not your money, not your committee membership, not your goodness, not your whatever it is. Nothing. Your grandma, your grandpa had great faith. That ain't working, man. It's your own faith. But it's not your faith like, oh, faith. There's not going to go come and look at me and say, oh, his faith was terrible. Jan's was fantastic. That's not how, no, no, no. He's going to say, did you count on my son even in the lowest moments for, the, for your whole life and salvation? I see you through the prism of the blood of my son. I see you as perfectly righteous because of Christ. It's not about you and how, build, how great you're doing. It's about how great he already did. And that takes all the pressure off. And here's the point I'm making. Ephesians 3 says he will do things that are greater and better than anything you could even hope for or imagine. So what I'm trying to show you is heaven is amazing. The reason it's so amazing is because God's there and you're with him. And you get to, did you read, hear that song? You're getting healed by his love and his presence. We're in the perfect place for all time. No more, you, you get what I'm saying? Oh, by the way, James 4 says this current life is a vapor. So, in other places of the Bible, it says make sure you invest the time. Don't spend it. Invest it. All for his glory while we're here. But it's a vapor. 90 years, maybe, or 100 years, and then boom, 10,000 years is just the beginning in heaven. Now, why am I telling you that? Because this man, Job, has been through the ringer, man. The greatest king, the greatest man in the East, he's blameless. He finds himself where his children have died and his homes have been taken away and he's sick and he's got all kinds of disease and his wife wants to kind of just have him curse God and die, she says. Why don't you just die? God says to Satan in the first couple chapters of Job, you know, my person, Job here, my friend Job, my son Job, he doesn't love me just for the gifts. He really loves me. He doesn't say it that way, but that's what he means. He really loves me. And Satan says, well, if you let me at him and take away some stuff, he'll curse you. And God says, well, go ahead. And so he takes away some stuff, as I've described. He doesn't curse him. And then God, Satan says, yeah, but you'll never let me touch him physically. If you do that, he'll curse you. And God says, well, you can do it, but don't kill him. So he gives him all those diseases, and he still doesn't curse him. Now, Job here, we've been going through 31 verse or chapters of the Bible. And he's starting to, hmm, it's hurting and there's pain. And the enemy comes in, the enemy of our souls. And what does the enemy do? He pounces on us. What does he get us to do? He did it in the garden. He gets us to doubt God. And now you're starting to see that a little bit with Job. Remember, Job's three friends that we've been studying here, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they have wrong theology. Here's their theology. God is perfectly just. That's not wrong. That's right. God is perfectly just. He blesses the righteous, and he punishes the wicked. And in one sense, that is true. But praise the Lord, on this side of the cross, we can have the righteousness of Christ. Oh, my. But he means if you're a good little boy or a good little girl, you're, only, you're going to get good things. If you're a bad little boy or a bad little girl, that's what the friends say, you're going to get bad things. And the one thing that they continue to argue is that Job has a hidden sin, and if he'll just confess that hidden sin, everything will go back to normal. But Job keeps telling him, I don't have a hidden sin. And in fact, God has called him a righteous and a, a, a blameless guy, right? Okay, so that's the story of Job. And we've been going round and round. He's been arguing with his friends, his three friends. We're in the third cycle of this argument. And we're at the last argument before God comes on the scene. And we'll do that next week. 
And this argument, though, comes from a new guy. His name is Elihu. Elihu. He uh, is this guy that must have been, we think, sitting around the ash heap where Job was sitting, the dung heap, the ash heap. There were three friends, but there must have been some more because he's been listening to these entire, all of these conversations between friends. He's been out there listening. And he brings a new perspective. What's interesting about this guy is he kind of comes from out of nowhere. So the commentators have big disagreements about who this guy is or what his purpose is. Some believe he's just some sort of brash, arrogant guy, and he is kind of arrogant here, you'll see that, who is pretty meaningless. Some people even believe this was inserted to the text, these next five chapters or six chapters, whatever, was inserted to the text and doesn't belong there. Some believe that um, uh, this Elihu is just a good guy who um, uh, has some great wisdom and what he's saying is it has some real truths to it, and you have to really think about and distinguish between what he's saying and what the three friends say, because it kind of sounds the same, but many people believe what he's saying is wisdom straight from the Holy Spirit. Some people believe Elihu is a type of Christ. Now remember, types in the Bible don't have to match up perfectly. Nobody's going to match up perfectly with Christ. So when a, there's a type in the Bible of Christ, there's some similarities and some things that they represent, but there's also some striking shortfalls from Christ, and of course there would be. So you don't get a hung up on the shortfalls. Of course there would be shortfalls. Christ is Christ. Jesus is Jesus, and we aren't. So some believe that. Uh, some believe, listen, this is interesting, uh, some believe that he is actually, listen to this now, an Old Testament Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, because there are several places in which uh, Jesus, it seems, appears in the Old Testament. And in this particular uh, case, in uh, uh, chapter 32 here, uh, we see an angel of the Lord, and we'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. So some people believe Elihu himself is Jesus Christ himself. Are you tracking with me? So there's a lot of different views about who this is and uh, whether he belongs here or doesn't belong here. Here's all I would say. He's the only guy in here that has a real definite genealogy, so it, he must be a real person here. Some people believe it just was inserted and he's kind of allegorical and just kind of a filler in there. I don't think so. I mean, here's a genealogy. Here's something that's really interesting. After he gives this speech for all these chapters, Job makes no retort or comeback or rebuttal. And guess what else? You're going to see God who lambastes the three miserable friends but doesn't say anything about Elihu. Hmm, interesting. Well, I'll leave you to be a Berean on that. I think he's a real person. Whether or not he's the angel of the Lord, you do digging and think about it. Here we go. Chapter 32, verse 1. So, these three men ceased answering Job. When we left, it said the words of Job were ended. It was as if Job just spewed it all out, right? And now, the words of Job have ended, and these three men, his three miserable comforters, stopped talking. They didn't talk to Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, the Buzzite, that's interesting. In uh, Genesis 22, Nahor, the brother of Abraham, had sons. One was named Huz, and one was named Buzz. Can you imagine naming your two boys Huz and Buzz? Isn't that funny? And from Buzz came a group called the Buzzites. Elihu was the son of a Buzzite, and this gives us a good timing of the book of Job. Historically, it goes all the way back at least to the time of Abraham. Okay, you catching? Old book. 
Okay, so he's a buzzite. Isn't that funny? Buzz and us of the family of Ram was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Circle that. File that away. This is important to Christianity, how we're justified. And, and well, anyway. So also, verse 3, against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So this guy has been sitting here listening. And because, verse 4, they were older than he, Elihu waited to speak to Job. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three, uh, uh, then his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, answered and said. Now, just so you know, Elihu is angry at Job for defending himself and for these three guys because they condemned Job without any evidence. Right, okay? Everybody tracking with me? All right, watch this. Here's what uh, Elihu says. I am young in years and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid. He's saying to Job, you were an older guy. I was trying to be, you know, respect my elders. The other three are older than me. I'm a young dude. Therefore, I was afraid, and I didn't declare my opinion to you. I said age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. See, a lot of people, by the way, think of this. Just because you get older means you get wise. Not necessarily the case. Watch this. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor, nor do the age always understand justice. Biblical wisdom doesn't come automatically. Just because you're 70 years old doesn't mean you have godly wisdom. Just because you're 70 years old and somebody else is 15 or 20 or 25 doesn't mean you have more godly wisdom than these people do. Where does wisdom in the Bible begin? The fear of the Lord. And fear means respect and awe. You sit in respect and awe of the Lord. But see, many times us gray hairs, as we get older, think we know it all. And we don't leave any place for the youngers. When in actuality, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is where wisdom's produced. And when we start to be know-it-alls who can't ever change, we're, you know, we're like, well, whatever we're like. See, we're living in our own strength. That's not very wise. So just because you're older doesn't make you wise biblically. How you become wise is you... Sit in awe of God. You read his word. You take it in. You study and meditate it on it. You talk with people about it. You, you go out and live it, man, in the world under the awe and respect and fear of our Lord. And when you make mistakes, which we all do, you, you, you apologize to the people you make mistakes to. You confess to the Lord. You fill, get filled up with the Holy Spirit and you move forward. Always in the fear of the Lord. Trial and error. That's so big in, in this, Right? But you don't act like a know-it-all. There's a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. What, what aids us? We, we're not alone in this. We have the Holy Spirit of God to lead us into all truth and righteousness, depend upon the Lord, not our own self-living. You see? To the extent you'll yield yourself to the Holy Spirit is to the extent in which you grow in wisdom. Man, I could go off for an hour about that. That self-righteous, I'm older, I know more. That living without, you know, in your own strength and power. Great men are not always wise, nor do the ages always understand justice. This is what Elihu says. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I sat patiently and I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him 
with your words. In other words, I'm not taking sides here between Job and you three. I want to just give you what the Lord has shown me as I've been sitting here and listening. What a great way to enter into a debate. I'm not taking sides with you or that. I just, but I want to speak truth into this thing. By the way, folks, I didn't even mean to say this, but I'm going to say it. Do you know what's wrong? Well, there's a lot of things wrong with American Christianity, but here's one great one. You're going to say, oh, okay, here comes the pastor. Here's one really bad thing. Church hopping. Not because you come here or don't come here. That's not it. But see, here's, we've made it so easy in the American church for you to go from church to church to church. Here's what happens. We, when we get into a conflict with somebody, like these people were in conflict, guess what we do? Uh, I don't like them, or the pastor said something like was really hard for me the other day. I'm just going to go to the next church. See, that's okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings if the Lord's leading you, but here's the problem with doing that. When you do that, you miss the beauty of what God wants to do. Here, this guy, he just says, listen, I'm not taking sides, but I'm going to have to tell you some hard things. The Bible tells us and commands us to speak truth, but with love. Speak love with truth. Be truthful and loving all at the same time. You don't have to kill people with what you know. You love people. But listen, if you, will, if you refuse to work through a conflict with people and things and you just jump from place to place, you'll never see the beauty of what God wants to do. And that's a real problem in church, in church life. We won't work through hard things with people. Well, here he says, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm not going to take sides. Verse 15, they're dismayed and answered no more. Words escaped them. I've waited because they didn't speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I, will, I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I'm full of words. The spirit within me compels me. He's busting to say something, but did you notice this? He listened. Don't you hate it when somebody doesn't listen, Jan? Don't you hate when people don't listen to you? When they're always, you know, you're, you're giving out your thing and you're, you're pouring out your heart and the other person's just interrupting and talking and fixing it and doing all this. This guy, you know, under the spirit, he was compelled to talk, but he listened to the whole thing. He must have been jumping out of his seat at some of the things that they were saying to each other. But he listened. Indeed, verse 19, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It's ready to burst like new wineskins. Man, I got to speak. I will speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone. May, me, may I say the truth. May I do it lovingly and respectfully. Man, do we need that. Nor let me flatter any man. Don't me, let me lie to people by flattering them. You know what flattery is, by the way? false flattery. It's really an idolization of yourself. You're idolizing yourself. You're like, what? Yeah, because you want people to like you so much, you flatter them all the time so they'll like you, but you really won't just come to them sometimes and tell them the truth. Lovingly, of course. Nor let me flatter any man, for I don't know how to flatter. Well, you can give compliments and edify and build up truthfully, else my maker would soon take me away. Now watch this. El Elihu is going to contradict Job, but please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Before you get mad, listen to everything I have to say. <laughs> I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from my heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. I'm sincere. These are honest. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Isn't that interesting? The oldest book in the Bible, and he says he's filled up with the Holy Spirit. Well, if you can answer me, set your words in order before me, take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. Now, if you haven't been with us, remember, <laughs> Job kept saying, if I only had a spokesman, if I only had a spokesman, he just kept saying that. If only I could get an audience with God, somebody would speak to me. You see, Ellie, thing just go out? Yeah, that was weird. This must be important coming here. <laughs> but he, he, he's telling him, I'm your spokesman uh, before God. I've been formed out of clay, just like you. He doesn't say just like you, but surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my, my hand be heavy on you. 
This is a different tone than the other three. You catching that? This is a different tone. He's going to tell him hard truths. He's going to tell it to him lovingly, and he's going to say it respectfully. He's going to say it confidently. You'll see that. But it's a way different tone. Okay, you there? So way different tone than the other three. And, and so here's what he says. Surely, verse 8, you have spoken in my hearing, and I've heard the sound of your words, saying, now Elihu is going to quote what Job has said previously. I'm pure without transgression. This is what Job has been saying. I'm innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. Uh, he uh, watches all of my paths. Now, this is interesting because you know what uh, Job is saying and Elihu heard it? Job is saying right here that God is unjust. <laughs> He's not fair. I'm innocent, and there's no iniquity in me. So you've got to know one thing that we've been learning in Job. Suffering isn't necessarily, I hate even saying it, but I'm going to say it, bad. In fact, suffering is good because what happens is your faith, like First Peter, becomes refined in the fire. And the Bible tells us that suffering gives us a special, uh, intimate fellowship with Christ himself that you don't get outside of suffering. So one of the things that we have to stop saying and it's hard not to because we love people and, and we don't want them in pain. Of course we don't. But sometimes suffering is what's best for people. Suffering's what uh, is best for people. You're like, are you kidding me? Well, do me a favor and turn to, this is going to be tough with two, only one hand, but turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 12. Start in verse 7 with me. Here's the great apostle Paul. Who had more faith in the world than the great apostle Paul? Raise your hand or tell me. Tell, tell me somebody that had more faith than the great apostle Paul. I mean, come on, folks. He, he, he basically planted churches all around the ancient world. He went from having everything in life that humans would love, power, prestige, money, all those things, God took it away from him and said, go and build my church, and he did. And so he does all these things for the Lord. That's how we say it. Lord, I've done so many things for you. I'm the pastor down here. It started in my living room. Lord, you've got to be blessing me. He did all these things for the Lord, this guy, Paul. It says this, and lest I should be exalted above measure... This, do you understand this is what Paul has learned by the Holy Spirit through his suffering? And he writes, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, this is after he'd seen the vision of paradise being caught up into the third heavens and seeing things that nobody else had seen. Listen, there's this tendency among us, isn't there? I, I would be like this. That would be my tendency. Wow, you took me up to heaven? Whoa, I'm so special. I mean, you took me up to heaven. I've basically started the church for you here, Lord. Here's would be some thinking. You owe me. Now, you might not say you owe me, but you'd be thinking it because, by the way, I hear it all the time. Oh, my goodness, I've been going to the Bible studies. I've been living my life for the Lord. I've been at the prayer meetings, and still I got fired. I've been doing all these things, and still she left me. I've been doing this, and I've been doing that, and man, I found out I had cancer this week. In other words, Lord, you didn't live up to your end of the bargain. You see, when we do that, we're obligating God into our debt, and God could never be indebted to us. It's false thinking, folks, and the, whole, the church is filled with people who think like that. 
Watch this. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, third heaven, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Now, you know this. People have surmised it was bad eyes, bad back, lots of pain, really miserable. And he, a messenger of Satan was sent to me to buffet me, to destroy me, to beat me up, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, he's writing this. He's found out that First Peter, his faith is more precious than gold, but, but because it's faith in God. I've been exalted above measure. And then verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I can just imagine. Here's how I would pray it. Oh, Lord, I've gone all the way around the world. I've given up everything for you. I mean everything. You even just took me up into the third heaven. I've prayed. Now I know because I've prayed, you're going to take this thorn away from me, this painful thing. I know you're going to. After the first prayer, nothing. After the second prayer, nothing. After the third prayer, nothing. But what did God impress upon? He said to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I want to be all of your supply, for my strength is made perfect in weakness Listen to what Paul said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, here's somebody who'd been through suffering. And God was trying to stamp out that a lot of things in Paul's heart, I'm sure, just like us. Paul wasn't anything special. He was human. He was probably trying to stamp out all of the self-righteousness and the self-sufficiency and the self-confidence. You're saying, wow, I grew up learning about that. No, here's what we're to have, confidence in God that makes us stable and solid. And he figured this out. I mean, this is the guy who, if anybody was going to obligate God, it would be him. But you can't put God into debt. Here he found out, my grace is sufficient for you even in weakness. Now, why did I bring you over there? Because here there's this guy, and he's going to speak in his hearing, and he uh, has been telling uh, uh, all of these people, and now he uh, uh, directs his attention towards Job, and he says, you've been saying you're without sin and there's no iniquity, and then why did the Lord put my feet in the stocks? You're saying that God is unjust and he owes you something. Look, verse 12, in this you are not righteous. See how honest that is? I'll answer you. For God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. Our thoughts, folks, are not his thoughts. Right? And uh, he doesn't have to give me an accounting for what he's doing. Are you catching that? Lord, why won't you tell me what you're doing? I've been asking for months, and you won't reveal it to me. And, the, you know, Elihu here, the, this messenger, comes and says, why would does God have to give any of us an accounting? Because he's God. For God may speak in one way or in another. He could speak in any way. Now watch. See how gracious God is, because I can feel the hair on the back of some of your necks going straight up, because you're like, why would God say that? And then look what God does. He turns around and does this. He goes, Elihu says, God doesn't have to tell you or give an accounting, for, but God may speak in one way or in another. He's explaining to them something that's very interesting, yet man doesn't perceive it. <laughs> How about that? There's some truth here, folks. In the suffering, like Job, you might be going through something and you keep asking, why is he silent? Why is he silent? But you might be the one who's not perceiving what God is trying to do. Get it? Look what he does here. He says, yet man does not perceive it. Verse 15, in a dream, a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men's and seals their instruction. Boy, is that interesting. In order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. Here's one way maybe God speaks. Through dreams. You say, okay, I'm going to go start being a dream interpreter. No, nah, that's not what I'm talking about. Not every dream means something. You might have just had pizza at 11 o'clock and you dreamt something rough. But also, we do know that there are... Have you ever been asleep and you woke up and you just knew in the morning? 
you knew that you knew that you knew that God has confirmed something or sealed something to you, and you knew you, could, you just had to go do it. God can do that. Of course he can. Some people believe, by the way, that he's not talking about a literal dream here. He's talking about your conscience because dreams tend to be what's buried in your conscience. You can be a Berean and figure that one out. But I want you to see this in verse 18. He keeps back his soul from the pit. Circle that. Do you understand something here? And you really need to know this. One of the, you, you're going to want to write this down. <laughs> Not because I'm any great Shakespeare, because it's kind of a tongue twister here. One of the things that the friends have always said is, hey, man, you're suffering because of sin. Well, see, Elihu says something similar, but, not, but very different. He doesn't say you're suffering because of sin. He says you're suffering to be kept from sin, just like Paul. Isn't that fascinating? See, the reason I started out with your faith is more precious than gold. You are only, I'm only interested in my comfort. We're trained that way from the time we're little now in America. We're only interested in comfort. And if we're outside of comfort, God must be bad. <laughs> but see, that's terrible theology. Here, it looks like to us, as you read this, he keeps back his soul. He's concealing pride from man. What does God hate? He hates pride. You can't come to the Lord in pride. You come humbly. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud, James 4, 6 says, and conceal pride, and he keeps back his soul from the pit. So one of the things that in addition to everything we've been learning up till now about suffering, here's another thing. You don't suffer because of sin all the time, but you are suffering to be kept from sinning. Here, Conceal his pride, keep back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. By the way, something else I think we learn all through this speech by Elihu, in addition to you're not suffering because of sin, but you're suffering to be kept from sin, here's another thing I think we're learning. You're not suffering because of sin. You're sinning because of your suffering. Did you catch that? He's not suffering because of sin. God's called him righteous and blameless, or upright and blameless, right? But now, what's happening is the enemy of uh, uh, Job's soul is preying upon his misfortunes here, and he is sinning now because of his suffering. And yet the Bible calls us to a higher plane. You ever just listen to Johnny Erickson Tata? Could you just sit there and listen for hours? Because you can almost not believe the love and the grace and the mercy and the good words and the beauty that's coming out of her mouth, having or given what has happened to her in this life. And yet she would tell you, without that, there would never be this relationship between her and the Lord. And one day she's going to go and skip and leap and be in her heavenly home where God is. Isn't that beautiful? Well, here it says, verse 19, man is also chastened with pain on his bed. What's another reason um, uh, um, man suffers? Uh, because he's chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that life abhors uh, bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. Are you catching this? One way that God speaks to us, catch it, is in dreams, or if you think it's a conscience, okay, whatever. Another way is through the pain itself. It's through the pain itself. He's trying to get you to wake up. Now, you've probably listened to this or read this. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, and you know he went through some really rough things there in his life. He wrote this, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. Did you catch that? The <laughs> error and sin both have this property. The deeper they are rooted in you, the less their victim, us, suspects their existence. 
Isn't that just clever and perfect? They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man or woman knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt. We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists upon, upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone, it's his megaphone, pain is, to rouse a deaf world. Man, God would go to any length for you to come back to him. Even pain. And here, apparently, God speaks through the pain. And then right in the middle of this, unbelievable, 23, if there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found the ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Uh, he shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says that, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it didn't profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life will see it. You say, well, what is this? It's here. God speaks to you uh, through dreams or your conscience, speaks to you through pain. If you'll listen, and here's the third one. He wants to speak to you through a messenger or a mediator. In, in, in fact, folks, here you've just stumbled upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, do you know what it says? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Did you catch what was said here? Man, but sometimes a messenger speaks to me. A mediator one among a thousand. There's nobody like him to show man he could be upright. And he's gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom, the price of a life. And this is what makes sense to me in suffering. Remember, we talked about this. Suffering that just comes out of nowhere is redemptive. Because the suffering of Christ was innocent suffering, unwarranted suffering. You might want to maul on that for a second. Sometimes when we think suffering's unwarranted, you can never be closer to Christ than when you're in that position. Oh my goodness gracious. And here, he says, if, if I had a messenger, a, a one who could uh, give a ransom, and then if I do that, I'll re return to the days of my youth. Do you catch what that says? You'll be born again. <laughs> it's right there, the gospel. He shall pray to God. We'll be delivered where we can have this intimacy with God, and we'll delight in him, and he will be able to see his face with joy, for he restores man to man his righteousness. This is the gospel, folks. In the oldest book of the Bible, then he looks at men, says, a sin and perverted what was right, and it didn't profit me. He'll redeem his soul from going down to the pit. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you've not surrendered your life to Christ, here's the, the, the uh, thing. Here's the, here's the truth. You're going down to the pit. Mm, that's hard to say. But in Christ, you'll be redeemed and be with him forever. That's why I told you what I told you at the beginning. Verse 29, behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with the man to bring back his soul from the pit. Do you see how gracious and merciful he just keeps trying and keeps trying? He's so patient to bring us back again and again that he might be enlightened with the light of life. If you've never given your life to Christ and you heard it on the radio, you've heard it in church, but you just said, ah, that's not for me. He's coming after you again and again with the message. Hold your peace, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, verse 32, answer me. He wants to hear from these guys and from Job. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace, and I will teach you wisdom. Wow. He's trying to keep us from sin. And he also wants to make sure that in suffering, we don't sin. <laughs> 
You're not suffering because of sin. You're sinning because of your suffering. And suffering can keep us from sin. And sin is deadly. Well, look at this in verse 34, or chapter 34. Well, Elihu goes and answers him some more and says, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you have knowledge. For the ear tests words. Actually, in Isaiah 1, God invites that. He says, come and reason with me, right? 118, as the plate tastes food. By the way, that's a quote from Job from chapter 12. So he's talking back what Job has said. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. You seeing that? You're not fair, God. So what's happening here is, just like the uh, Eve in the garden... God is getting Job to doubt God. And as he gets uh, him to doubt God, he's trying to get him to do what? Curse God. That's the whole competition, if you wanted to call it a competition. That's the whole debate between God and Satan. And so, you know, Job is kind of shaky right here. He's like, what? This isn't fair. You know what the Bible tells us? I just, I don't mean to be fire and brimstone, but the Bible tells us we deserve hell. The only thing we deserve is hell. And what we get is life. We get life and grace to be reconciled back to the Father. If, we never, if he never did anything else but salvation, huh, that's more than enough. We're just a vapor here and then. Presence of the Lord forever and ever. Well... He's saying, again, but I'm righteous, or Job has said I'm righteous, but God has taken away justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like God, or like Job? Here's why I say he's shaky. Who drinks scorn like water. He's scorning the Lord. He's being scornful to the Lord, and it's refreshing to him. See, this is what happens in suffering. Doesn't it happen in suffering? We start... Oh, man, this is hard to say. We start doubting God. We start getting shaky. And then we start complaining against God. And look, it makes us feel better when we complain against God. Here he says he's drinking scorn to refresh himself. Whoa. When there's a higher and a better way. But here he's being very honest. Who drinks scorn like water. Who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men. For he has said it profits a man nothing, nothing that he should delight in God. In other words, he said, you've told me to, be, to follow you and to walk in your ways. And I've been doing it and it profits me nothing. All I get suffering. Man, it's like modern America, folks. This is modern America stuff, the oldest book in the Bible. So, what does he say? He says this, Therefore, listen to me, chat verse 10, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wicked. By the way, they asked Jesus, what, is, what works do we got to do? To get into heaven. They asked him this question. What works do we got to do? It's so funny. We're all works-based. What do we got to do? Show me. If I just do this, if you just do... God, Jesus says, just believe. Just receive my grace. Just believe. Just tap into the grace. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Verse 12, chapter 34. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice, who gave him charge over the earth, or who appointed him over the whole world. If we should set his heart on it, if we, he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. In the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without a hand, for his eyes are on the way of man. Now catch what he's saying here. He, he judges, we just read, Listen, if God's not the ultimate judge, government, men, nobody knows justice because he's perfectly just. And here's why he's perfectly just in his judgments, because he judges impartially. Guys, gals, 
You ever been to a courtroom? Okay, you come in there for a... <laughs> I'll tell this story real quick. One time my friend, my friend Eric, he's a criminal lawyer. I didn't want to do it. I hate criminal law. I hate it. He said, hey, man, I just got a plea down at the court. I just need you to handle this DUI plea. It'll be real easy. I'll tell you what to say. It'll be real easy. So I said, okay, great. I'll go. So I'm in front of one of the roughest judges in Allegheny County. He's rough, man. And me and the client get up there, and I can see the judge. The judge is getting, like, red as her shirt. I mean red. And he's fired up about something. Now, right before we went up to the bench, the guy said, I'm going to put my jacket back on the coat rack. I said, all right. But here I am. I'm standing. I'm doing the whole thing. I, I'm, like, thinking to myself, I'm doing exactly what Eric told me to do. I'm saying all the right stuff. Did I not say sir to my tie-up? And the judge is just getting more mad and more mad. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And finally, the judge just can't take it anymore. And he says, you know, on your DUI plea, you really probably shouldn't wear a shirt with a martini glass and bubbles. And I look over, and the guy's got a T-shirt on. It's got a big martini bar shirt on. And I'm like, wow. Now, do you think, no offense to the judge, that would be prejudice. I mean, he would think prejudice. Yes, of course, he's a human being, right? But God judges impartially. Perfect impartial. And then he says, uh, in the moment they die, in the middle of the night, judge, he, he judges uh, with uh, uh, no uncertainty. When he judges, you'll know he judges. Then in 21, his eyes are on man. He judges with no ignorance. He sees all the steps. There's no darkness. His judgment is perfect, and you can just read through here all the way through 27, all the way through 28, all the way through 29. He judges perfectly, and when he gives quietness, verse 29, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who can see him? Whether it's against the nation or man alone, that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared. He's going to take care of hypocrites. Who think hypocrites need to be judged? Raise your hand. So you think yourself should be judged. Okay, because I'm a hypocrite sometimes, but we're right. We raise our hands. We want hypocrites to go down. We want, and they will. He says it, but it might not be until he comes back, but they will go down. Verse 31, for any, has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. Listen to what he's saying to Job. Real quick, watch this. He's saying, Job, take another look. I know you're in suffering. It's really hard for me to say this to you, but take another look. Take another look at yourself. I'm not like the other guys who are telling you that you're despicable and all that, but would you take another look? Because you seem to be, look at the end of verse 33 or beginning of verse 33, wanting to repay according to your terms. You want to meet God on your terms, and the terms are this, I'm just, I've done great, you owe me. And you know one of the things that God wants to do is he wants to smash all of that self-importance and pride because God gives grace to the humble and he can use us in our weakness because his glory gets out. Now, he doesn't want to smash you, but he wants to live in and through you as you lay all those other things aside. Therefore, speak what you know. Men of understanding say to me, verse 34, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost. He, because his answers are like those of wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us, and he multiplies his words against God. You know, our... Folks, I want you to just take another look. I'll take another look. Do you know what the Bible says? You all do. Isaiah 64 says, Your good works are like filthy rags before God. My good works are like filthy rags before God. If I've done anything outside of sin in my own self-sufficiency and confidence without the Lord pretending to be something religious when I really, you know what I'm saying? It counts for nothing. They're like filthy rags. But those things done in the spirit of the Lord, well, they are the things that count unto eternity. So the Lord isn't 
mean, what he's doing is he's trying to stamp out self-righteousness in us so that he can live in and through these cracked pots. Get it? And look in 35 here. He says, do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? You catch that? Remember, he's talking to Job. You say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I'll answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They're higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Verse 7. If you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness is son of man. But because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because the arm of the mighty, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? I, I, I know it's as long. I know it. And I know you're fading in and out. I, I, I get it. But I don't want you to miss this, man. Do you know what he says right here? Do you know why? God might be silent. There's these people crying out. They're crying out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker? Because here's what. People are just crying out just to get out of a fix. And they're not really crying out for me. And he says it's better. He, what he's saying right here is it's better to live where there's no light and it's always nighttime because God will give you a song than it is to when you get in a predicament, Lord, if you just do this, I'll always be yours. And then, you know, he does it or whatever. And then the next day you just forget about him. That's what he's saying right here. The Lord gives you songs in the night. The Lord might not take you out of something, but the Lord will be right there in there with you during the something Charles Spurgeon says this, it's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but it's the skillful singer who can sing when there's not a ray of light by which to read. Wow. Have we tuned our hearts to his? Can we sing in the night? Are we loving him more than the gifts he loves to give gifts. Of course he does. And then look here, down in verse 14. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. One of the things he's saying right here to Job this is a hard thing to say, somebody going through suffering. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Job, it's not whether you see him. It's whether he sees you that's important. Whew. It's not whether you see him that's really important. It's whether he sees you. We've got it all backwards. We've put ourselves at the center of the universe when God really is at the center of the universe, and we revolve around him. Well, listen, I didn't get through it all. I only got through 35. But we're going to try and tackle it next week. And here's what I'd say. You catch what we're learning here, folks? We're learning so many things about suffering. We're learning that we might say right things but we're not connecting with people's hearts when we minister to them. We have our, all our theology right, but we're not connecting. It's important that we connect to a person's heart. It's important to listen when ministering, not just spout off. Be swift to hear, James tells us. Sometimes when we're ministering to people or we're in the church, sometimes, you know what's really golden and good? I'm going to say it. Just shut up. <laughs> Just be silent. You don't always have to have an answer for every little detail about somebody's life. Maybe what somebody just needs is a hug. You don't have to have all the answers. Would we become people who would worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness and tremble before Him in all the earth instead of just loving all the gifts? We learn from Job the. Uh, a deep insight into Christ's sufferings. That's something I didn't talk much about tonight.
Here's another thing. Don't be harsh and accusatory or arrogant when talking to someone in pain. How about this one? Undeserved suffering of the righteous man. Undeserved suffering of the righteous man is redeemable. (laughs) Is what Christ went through. It's the same thing that Christ went through. It makes possible the amazing undeserved forgiveness of Christ. The undeserved suffering makes a way for the undeserved forgiveness. Trials wean us from the dependence on people and things. And as we learn tonight, sometimes, just like the great Apostle Paul, the pain can keep us from going to the pit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for this night, and we thank you for these amazing, glorious, grand, majestic truths. Lord, this is a, these are hard truths. Help us, Lord, to live in this way, to be so filled up with Christ. So filled up with Christ, Lord. That when we go out there and we're shamed and scorned and talked about and enemies come, we love passionately. We serve and forgive all in the name of Jesus and by his strength and power. In his name we pray. Amen.